Before we start this podcast, I want to definitely remind you of a sponsor for Fresh of the Word, 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. In a world of wrestling where there's hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads, don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. So if you'd like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or even Zubaz, then drop them a line at 20by20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20apparel.com. And also check out their enamel pin line. It's super cool. Fresh is the word. To the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. And like always, we have the freshest of guests for you. And the guest for this episode is American scholar, feminist, and author Jane Ward. And we're going to talk about her newest book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. Um, with that, we get into a lot of my own my own journey to finding my own sexuality and uh, my, my own gender identity and how how fun it is to kind of let loose and be on that, you know, queer spectrum, whatever, you know, whatever side of it it is, you know, and I was able to actually kind of resolve a few things in my mind during this uh, episode. Um, I like what you'll hear it in this episode. One thing that I'd always say is like, yeah, I'm queer, but I still like women. Um, it made it sound like I was kind of a I felt like, I felt like I was saying in a way where I was like a little sh- ashamed still about, uh, identifying as queer, but, uh, Jane was like, no, no, think about it is I'm, qu- you know, I'm queer and I love, I I'm attracted to women. You make it a positive. And I was like, yo, boom, that's exactly right. Yo, Jane Ward, she's a professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Riverside, where she teaches courses in feminist, queer, and heterosexuality studies. She's had a couple of previous books called uh, Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men, and that shit's fascinating because I got that book too, and Respectability Queer. Um, so, you know, it's a good, it's a good, uh, it was a good interview with her. Uh, I like doing these uh, interviews uh, with, uh, you know, sex educators, because I learn a lot, and I feel like I got a lot to uh, share with people about my situation, um, because I feel like, you know, I, the, everybody's story is sort of unique, and everybody's kind of queer in their own ways. While I'm recording this, the, the night before, I I interviewed uh, erotic audio artist and humiliation, you know, specialist, Dr. Lovejoy, and she was such a Oh, she was such a joy, a gem to talk to. And that, that, that interview will be up in a couple of weeks. But it was like, you know, we talked about what she does. And she, you know, she is like the femdom. She does all this sort of audio. You know, everybody has these sort of kinks. And 
she can get through with just audio like he she said like you know she don't show her you know her her ass and her tits and what everything her you know her her voice her mouth is her pussy <laughs> but um she like she was such a joy like i i heard her on the two girls one mic podcast you know i've had Yvette and alice on the podcast before and i just she made me like she made me like speechless like i'm speechless right now trying to like talk about being speechless she she was a joy she's very fun i'm she is i'm i'm see i can't even talk i'm like blah 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 but anyway yeah look for that in a couple weeks uh next week will be my interview with uh prika the from the from the thrash metal band nervosa uh you know they used to be in all all female all brazilian thrash metal band but now they've had a lineup change and they're um they they're more international she um the new members of the band are from uh you know from europe and we talk about all that you know about the lineup change and we talk a lot about you know the the hardships in brazil how it is being a woman or even just a young girl trying to you know figure out what, what she wants to do in her life in brazil uh you know how how preka has been a you know role model for women who want to get into things that are very male dominated and yeah it's good i love nervosa so much their uh their uh newest album is it's on napalm records it is yeah, it's dope. It's it's heavy. it's awesome, and I I I love all their albums. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, besides that, um, you know I'm gonna very soon. I don't have the date yet. I'm gonna be starting a Twitch TV show. <laughs> Twitch TV show about it's gonna be a Twitch show. It's gonna be it's gonna be video, and it's gonna be about Detroit music history. It's gonna be about obscure stuff, you know. Um, I think I'm going to go with the name Obscurities. And um, each week I'm going to pick like five records that are from my collection, actual physical records of varying, uh, varying like genres. And these are things that, you know, maybe people don't know about in Detroit music history. I got so, I got so many, I keep on buying records too during this pandemic that I just got, I have more and more and more and more stuff. And then, uh, so be on the lookout for that. I don't have a time frame on that, but that's going to be, um, the audio for that's going to be on the Renaissance Soul podcast feed. I'm going to include it on there. And I'll probably have the video for that on my Patreon. And I'm going to start, I'm going to start putting uh, videos of the, of stuff that I do on Zoom and uh, whatever. If, if it comes out cool on the uh on my Patreon. Uh, I really haven't been doing much on Patreon lately, just been uh, using it as a tip jar. But if you go to patreon.com slash fresh is the word, uh, for as little as $1 a month, just $1, one stinking little dollar, but feel free to do more. You can uh, you can help out with the show and will definitely it definitely helps out because I keep on buying records, you know. So any tips or anything, if you have records you want to, uh, Detroit records that you want to like donate to the cause, you know, just hit me up, yo. Like I'll take, you know, I'm 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 down to take anything. Uh, I'm really looking for old like soul funk 45s, old uh, hardcore punk 45s and albums. Uh, I got 
a lot of hip-hop stuff but you know there might be stuff that i might not know about i'm always like finding little little weird stuff and i also like really odd things too i'm looking for a really odd oddball like seven inches and stuff that came from detroit or or the surrounding areas it's more of like a south like a michigan thing more more so um but it's still centered around detroit but um be on the lookout for that um of course i'm still like doing the you know the renaissance soul uh podcast i just dropped in my interview that i did a while back with jazz legend wendell harrison so Go check that out on Renaissance Soul, and I got a I got a few more in the in the books right now, and everything everything's kind of cool right now. Um, we're getting a lot of snow here in uh, in Michigan. Uh, there's a lot of deep freeze and snow everywhere. Um, yo, positive thoughts to anybody down in Texas. If you can help, uh, they just got hit, and there there's so many people that are that are um just. You, they don't got power or heating or anything. They're the the government down there definitely failed them, and looks like they're continuing to fail them. You know, you got that the idiot Ted Cruz going on vacation in the middle of all this. Man, fuck that guy. But um, there's you know just go online. There's a lot of ways you can help. Um, I know people are struggling, mad struggling down there because they're not used to that weather, and then there and then you got. And it's really, and then you got fuckers like, uh, what's his name, man? Uh, Jimmy Jones or whatever the Jerry, Jerry Jones. He's the, uh, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, man. He's making a killing off the, uh, cause he owns a, like a power energy company and he's making a killing off of that right now. You know, one person's struggle is another person's jackpot, you know, but yo, karma's going to come for these motherfuckers. You know what I'm saying? So, but without further ado, uh, let's uh, let's get into this interview with Jane Ward and talk about her uh, newest book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. And the guest for this episode is Jane Ward. She is a professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Riverside. And she's the author of Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men and Respectably Queer, diversity, culture, in the LGBT activist organizations. And her newest book is The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing doing fantastic. You know, just making it through this weird world we are living in right now. Exactly. That's <laughs> all we can do. How are, you, how are you making it through the pandemic? You know, I was doing okay until the wildfires. I'm in California, and one of the fires was right above our house on the mountain, right above our house. So it just was a lot at once. But thankfully, thank thank you to the firefighters. It is now out, and a blue sky has returned. Good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah, that that was nuts. Oh, oh. <laughs> It got to, but I mean, we've had fires here before where we have to stay indoors because it's so smoky, but it's never been so close and so smoky that the, the smoke was coming into our house, even with windows and doors closed. And so that was when it really started to get kind of claustrophobic. Oh, did you stay the whole time or what'd you have to do? I took our 10 year old, my, my wife stayed because she needs to stay and take care of the animals. We have chickens and a pig, sort of like a little mini farm here. Nice. Um, but I took my, our 10 year old and just headed, headed east to Arizona for a few days so we could breathe. 
Yeah, it was. That's that's crazy, man. Woo. So yeah, I'm glad yeah. everything is uh, cleared up in your part. You know, you're safe. It's good to hear. I know. Now I'm just hoping. I I had to take a a break from the news because it was raising my anxiety level. So I'm kind of like hibernating until November fourth, <laughs> when I hope to wake up to really good news. I feel you, man. It's like we're. It just like every day you're like, what do you, what am I going to read today that's going to just be nuts? I know it's an endless endless flow of bad news. It's really hard to catch a break, and especially if you're a person. I mean, I know this is not our topic for today, but you know, if you're a person who struggles with anxiety like I do, it's interesting because suddenly everybody is kind of vibrating on the same anxious level that I normally vibrate at. And so in that way, it's kind of validating. Yeah. But it also is like, oh, I really got to make sure that I take care of myself. And, you know, I'm just not on like watching the news or on social media too much or it's it can kind of paralyze me. What, what do you kind of do when you get in that that sort of when that hits really bad, you know, besides just kind of separating yourself, like what do you have to do at that moment? Well, you know, it's hard because I actually find I'm kind of a news junkie and I find, you know, politics is like my sports. I don't like sports, but I watch a presidential debate like other people watch, you know, the Super Bowl. And so (laughs) it's hard for me because I want to watch it, but things have gotten so bad um, that I have to actually pull myself back from something that sort of gives me pleasure. But if I'm not careful, it goes from excitement to anxiety pretty quick. And so, <laughs> right. you know, like turning off all of the news, even though that makes me sad to do that, I have to do that. I have to walk outside. I meditate. You know, I've been kind of dealing with this for a while. So unfortunately, my partner, she can recognize the early signs of me getting ramped up. And so she'll often be like, okay, you're seeming anxious, you know, time to take care of yourself. So your career, you know, is based around gender and sexuality studies. You know, you have the, you know, multiple books that, that kind of go down that line. What, you know, what got you into, you know, wanting to go into that field, you know, and just, and what kept you continue, continuing like this journey to sort of dive into all these aspects of, you know, gender and sexuality? Well, you know, I actually got my PhD in sociology and I did, um, I did focus on in queer studies, and I did some research when I was in grad school on HIV AIDS. Um, but what happened was that I got hired into a sociology department, and I was just so grateful to have a job, honestly. It's so competitive, the academic job market, that when I got a job, I just was like, hallelujah, I got a job. <laughs> right. But I was not expecting it to be so, so conservative in my department. And it turned out to be a department that was pretty racist, sexist, homophobic. And um, it was so toxic that I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll leave the academy if that's what I have to do. Um, I went on the job market to try to find another job. And I did get another job. And then my university said, we really don't want to lose you to where you think you would be happy. And I said, 
oh yeah, I didn't even know that was an option. <laughs> I would like to move. I'd like to move to gender studies. And they said, great, let's let's make it happen. You know, we want you to be happy here. And I have to say, it was kind of like divorcing an abusive partner and then having like a hot new romance. I just was so happy to be out of that department. And um, and one of the things that happened, and you know, gender studies is an interdisciplinary field, so there are all kinds of people. You know, people who get their degrees in, um, I mean, there are some people with PhDs in feminist studies, but a lot of people from anthropology and political science and um, sociology and psychology. And so so we had, and, and literature, comparative literature, um, yeah. various humanities disciplines. So it really invites you, like, as long as you're, work is focused in some way on gender and sexuality, you can be really creative with the methods and the theory that you bring to it because it is an interdisciplinary field. And so I love being in a gender studies department. How did you sort of mold your own sort of, you know, theories and practices, you know, once you moved into that field? Well, um, I've been working now for over, over 10 years in in a new field that I, I'd say really just kind of a handful of people are helping to build. I mean, maybe more than that. Um, but, but, uh, and I guess we could call this field like critical statement studies or critical heterosexuality studies. And it's, 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 I've been inspired by the way that, um, that critical race scholars, um, highlighted for us that to really understand systems of, of white supremacy and racial injustice, racial hierarchies, we can't just look at what's going on for people of color. We also have to understand whiteness. And so out of, out of that awareness emerges critical whiteness studies. Yeah. Um, and similarly, you know, feminist research on men and masculinity. And so I'm a, I'm queer and I'm a queer scholar, but I'm really interested in straightness, which may, I think, seem strange to some people, but I'm interested in it as a historical category. You know, I want to know um, how, how, when was the concept of heterosexuality first invented and by whom and what was the context? I want to know, you know, how have people, um, how have people thinking about heterosexuality changed over time. Um, how are heterosexuality and homosexuality kind of defined in, in relation to or in opposition to one another? So I teach a course called Critical Approaches to Heterosexuality. And um, my last book was about some of the complexities of straightness. And now this book is also um, about straight culture and, and my observations of it as um as a lesbian yeah it's kind of like that thing where it's where people will doesn't matter what they're doing like if they want to change something in the world or reinvent themselves they don't necessarily reinvent themselves they try to understand what the obstacles out there and it's kind of like you know to change yourself you have to change the world right Right, because none of us are actually individual actors who are living in a vacuum. You know, all are in many ways all of the 
choices that are made available to us are kind of scripted. And um, if we want to get free, if we want more liberating alternatives, we have to really work to find those. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, the beginning of uh, the tragedy of uh, heterosexuality that I liked, it was just like uh, you were... You were just kind of giving a broad, you know, a broad overview of what you're about to read in this book, and there was that point where you you asked this, um, you know, a couple um, lesbian couples or a, a couple queer women, they um, who had kids, um, and they were saying how they wouldn't, they don't want their children to be gay. Uh, so they didn't have to deal with what they had to go through. But then you asked why, you know, why do you think like that way? Do you, and they eventually were like, you know what? I do love being queer, you know? And right. I, I like that story too, because, um, you know, for me personally, I, you know, I came out as queer last fat, last, uh, almost a year ago, I guess now. Oh, <laughs> Congratulations. That's so fresh and new. Yeah. And um, it was after years of sort of like having all these questions because I didn't fit into the heteronormative things that I was seeing all over all the times and nothing. I, I just, I just was not relating to anything. And so like I started just to um, kind of go down that you know, that rabbit hole took a long time to sort of understand it because, you know, the discussions just weren't there like in regular in pop culture and everything like that. Um, so, you know, it took a while and I think the, the critical point in all of this for my journey was when, when the, um, the discussions about gender started becoming more normal. And I realized that it was, it was, uh, you know, my, you know, how I resonate as in uh, gender wise, because I, um, you know, also, um, you know, feel that I'm non-binary and, right. you know, I feel like my, you know, the masculine feminine energy is like equally there, you know, and I felt that lent itself to, you know, my sexuality more so than anything else. You know, it was like, Hey, um, I feel like it's the gender thing that kind of, that I've been looking for. And then that like answered everything else. So in what, you know, and what I liked about that opening with yours is that like, once I figured that out, I was like, yo, I like this, you know, I like figuring that I figured myself out for pretty much. And that there's like this sort of new sort of this, this freedom that, in my mind that I can now go with and, but you're still sort of, you know, then you look back and you're haunted by all the sort of misogynistic heteronormative things that you've been told all your life that were like, you look back and it's just crazy. And then you even still like when you're still dealing with it, like when, when you still, when you do come out and still make that decision, what, whatever, like, you even continue to still frame it in that bigoted way in certain, in certain times. Right. Yeah. I really love what you're saying. And I'm, I'm, you know, my first thought is just, just to kind of state the obvious that our, 
our gender, um, our gender identities, gender expression, yeah, and our sexuality are so interconnected. You know, we we come to understand our sexuality through gender, and we come yeah. to understand our gender often through our sex practices, sort of tell us something about how we want our gender to be interacted with and how we want to be perceived. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that for, you know, a lot of us as we're figuring out, you know, we're on some kind of queer journey and sometimes we even get confused. Like we think the question, the primary question is about sexuality and then we discover it was really about gender. Yeah, exactly. Or vice versa. Yeah. Um, and so, so that, you know, what you said really resonates for me. I, I think also, um, you know, I, I love that for many queer people, queerness is kind of, um, it's almost like a calling, like you can feel even maybe before you come out, you can just feel that something about the regular world is just not enough. It's not quite right. It right. doesn't really meet your needs. And there's a great queer scholar named Jose Esteban Munoz who um, he's passed, but but he wrote um, so beautifully about this. And he talked about feeling queerness as pull, you know, feeling pulled toward the queer, um, to gender and sexual non-normativity, not necessarily even like homosexual sex per se, but just like, being feeling drawn toward the possibility that gender and sexuality could be so much more or so so more so much more expansive than how it's currently defined and i think that's such a beautiful definition of queerness yeah like like there's a lot of you make a lot of, a lot of little nods to this during you know in the book where it's almost like you know succumbing to the heter you know heterosexual norms that you know has been put out there is a lot of fucking work. Yeah, <laughs> it can yeah. be like very like can be very draining, you know. Um, and then it gets um, then you get into a part where you know, and this is something that you know definitely was in my mind before. Whether I is that I grew up with that whole like you know how to pick up chicks culture, you know. Like right. I was growing up in the thick of that, you know, and that's where everybody that I, like all my, you know, my friends and my family, whatever, like that, that's where they got, that's where they picked up their things, you know, and it was always, uh, you know, oh man, I'm getting no pussy lately or, you know, she's hot. I wouldn't do her like whatever, you know, it was all this stuff where it was an entitlement. Like, um, like you, you know, like you say in the book a lot. And to me, none of that resonated with me. I was just like, um, all right. And I tried and, just, and it just came off as it felt fake to me. It felt kind of sleazy. And I was just like, all right, all right. And then, but at the same time, I didn't learn anything about how to just, you know, how to, you know, deal with like women and other people, you know, how I should be like dealing with, you know, relationships. So I was just like, kind of, eh, I don't know. <laughs> it was just kind of like that yeah. thing where it was like, eh, it's kind of crazy, but like, 
you know, and you can, and you go go into it in this book, like the kind of evolution of like the you know the dating coaches, the you know how to pick up chicks, to pick you know into this sort of life coach, dating coach thing that um it would you know kind of they would reinvent themselves in. Like, do you see that like that culture has progressed in a good way at all? Well, um, I, it's complicated, and I try to explain how it's complicated um, in that part of the book. I yeah. mean, when I started doing an ethnography of pickup artists and, you know, seduction coaching, I really expected, like, okay, I'm going to hate these men. But once I got in there <coughs> and started attending these boot camps, I realized that, um, you know, it's really not just straight women who suffer from the culture of heterosexuality. It's also, it's also straight men. And, um, you know, they had a lot of them got really vulnerable in that space, cried in that space. You know, they basically felt really disempowered around, um, how to, um, how to meet women, how to talk to women. Right. They were often afraid of women. Um, they didn't really feel like they understood what the rules were. Now, now what they were being taught in many ways just reinforces like some of the worst stereotypes, you know, really like doubles down on the gender binary number one, but also reinforces a lot of stereotypes about women. But I think what's compelling those men to go to those spaces to pay 1500 to $3,000 for a weekend of advice on how to pick up women is that, is that heterosexuality is broken for a lot of people. And yeah. what it looks like for women, for straight women, is different than what it looks like for straight men. With straight women spent a lot of time just kind of complaining together about men, um, you know, and that's a big part of what I talk about in this book too, that, you know, if heterosexuality is so um, healthy and functional and if it truly delivers on this promise of, you know, making people happy or yeah. making for an easier life, then why are so many straight women so miserable? And yeah. I think the the misery that straight women experience, um, it often kind of reaches a peak, I think, for women in, as they get older, like in their 40s and 50s, because that's when a lot of women divorce. Um, we know that most divorces are initiated by women. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, and women often seek out divorce because they've been become so disillusioned um, and frustrated with the inequalities of heterosexual marriage. And we've just got a ton of feminist research that, that kind of lays that picture out, unfortunately, that even when women work in paid labor force as much as their male partners, even when they make as much money, if not more money than their male partners, they still come home and do way more of the parenting labor, the household labor, yeah, yeah. the emotional labor, um, they often, you know, feel really alienated from their husbands who like don't know who, who are kind of emotionally deficient sometimes or who 
who act sort of like another child rather than like a truly equal adult um, life partner. And so, so for women, a lot of what happens is that they buy these like marriage self-help books, you know, where they go to therapy hoping to save their marriage in some, some way, you know, to resuscitate it, to deal with all of their resentment. But I think men, um, you know, the story for them is different. They internal, you know, they repress. We know that men repress a lot of their feelings. Yeah. We know that they're more likely to like turn to drugs and alcohol to kind of help medicate the feelings. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so it's tragic on both sides, but different. Yeah. It's different. Cause like from the moment that you're, born like men are told like you know be a man you know and and there's not that space for a man as they're growing up to be vulnerable and share their feelings with another man you know if if you happen to find that cool but it's just it's it's very rare and right that's why that's why you know men you know men are have have all that repressed you know and it's and it's and it's even, and it almost even is even worse for, you know, men, you know, men of color, you know, in the black and Latino communities where, um, you know, a lot of that is, is looked at as a weakness and it's, and it's, it's very troubling and hopefully, you know, we can, you know, find, you know, men can reinvent themselves, you know, to sort of be open more to all of that. Yeah, and I hope, I mean, one of the arguments that I make at the end of the book is that if for no other reason, it would be Wait, hold on. really, okay. Sorry about that. All right. That's okay. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so one of the arguments I, I make in the book is that if for no other reason, it would really serve men to, to, um, to take care of their mental health, to take care of themselves, but also to think about women, not just the, you know, their daughters or their wives, but to recognize that if they're really so heterosexual, like if they really love women so much, as much, if they're so oriented to women the way they claim to be, then they need to actually care about women as a group. You know, they need to care about women's what's right, what's best for women. They need to care about women's um, equality, about women's rights. And that means being a feminist. And when men actually recognize that men can be feminists too, and they have, you know, they kind of get activated around like starting to recognize, you know, the way that masculinity and the way that patriarchy not only is hurting women, but also hurting them and realizing that they have a stake in, you know, um, disinvesting in patriarchy. We know that their relationships with women become much healthier. I mean, you know, this, like, like I said, you know, if for no other reason, do it because you're, the sex you have with women is going to be better because the relationships you have with women are, is going to be better. They're going to be more sustainable. So, I, I just think, you know, like the health of heterosexuality in many ways is what's on the line. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. 
you know, one thing I was, you know, I've always thought about because um, a part of my journey to, you know, just realizing my identity was that about, it's probably been about three years now, um, maybe even four by now, um, you know, I started going to therapy and I learned a lot about myself during that, that helped, that changed my life or whatnot. And, but one of the things that I kind of like my, my therapist is a woman and to at a, at a certain point, there's, there was times when she was like, you know what, there's thing there's, you know, I would uh, recommend that you go see a male therapist because there's things that you need to, you know, talk about in regards to that side of things with a male therapist that I necessarily can't give you the, you know, the rights, you know, tools for my problem with that was when I started researching like male therapists in my area, they, while all the women came off as being very, you know, when you research them online or whatever, the women came off very nurturing and, all their, you know, their, their descriptions and everything was very nurturing, but all the, like most of the male uh, therapists, they almost came off as like, you know, these pickup, you know, pickup line artists or life coaches and stuff like that. Uh, and yeah. I, and I felt like they were there, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I could trust these guys. I was like, it felt like I, you know, they were selling something, you know, do you, right. you know, What's your thoughts about that? Like when, you know, and this kind of builds on what you were talking about in the book, you know, you get these things that are, you know, there to quote unquote help people, but it just still seems like there's this sort of, I guess, misogynistic overtone with it. Yeah. I mean, my, my main reaction is that I think it's, it's really too bad that your therapist, felt like there were certain things that only, you know, that you could only talk with a man about or that only men would understand. I mean, that's really, oh, you know, reinforcing this idea that there are like biological or, or, you know, otherwise um, sort of fixed differences between men and women that just simply cannot be bridged. And, you know, we know in the queer community that, especially like if we um, have learned about, you know, trans and trans um, folks and gender fluidity and being non-binary, that gender is a moving target. It's something that um, is a social construction. We can all pick up the tools of gender and use them regardless of our genitals. And so, you know, I'd be really curious, like what she thought she couldn't provide um so i guess yeah i guess that would be that would be my main reaction it kind of reminds me of when people say like oh well you, you know you you need to have um like the, their concern with queer people parenting is that if they have kids the children if it's two you know gay men the children won't have a mother and they need to have a mother for certain things or mm. the children won't have a father and they need to have a father and we you know, the data just simply doesn't support that. Um, they're kids, like girls, you know, girl children um, have just 
as good, if not better outcomes when raised by gay parents and boys similarly when raised by lesbians um, than do children of heterosexual couples. So we need to question this idea that we have to, you know, you can only get masculinity or you can only address certain kinds of questions by talking to people with a particular set of genitals. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, I think uh, where else I'm going with this is that like this sort of, you know, kind of the, this tragedy with heterosexuality, I, you know, it kind of looms over a lot of different industries because I feel like, you know, as, as like the, you know, the pickup artist sort of industry kind of changed a little bit, as you detailed in the book, you have like, like I said, you have uh, therapists that kind of feel like they're doing the same thing. And then you have like, sort of like the, the professional, hacker sort of um the you know the gary v's of the world not saying gary v's bad but the people who kind of imitate him you know Uh like they kind of pick up on sort of like that same vibe where it's just like the you know what you know what people will be like you know llc twitter you know the people online that will will like be like during this pandemic oh you know at the end of this pandemic you should have a new skill and stuff like that where there's this sort of, you know, entitlement or there's something that kind of mimics that, uh, that heterosexuality, um, normative thing that kind of seeps into all these other industries. You know, do you see that? Absolutely. Yeah. I think what you're getting at is, um, the intersections of, neoliberalism and patriarchy and the way that they, you know, there's particular, uh, the pressure is on everybody to experience personal transformation and endless personal growth. But I think men experience it in a particular way. Yeah. That you're always supposed to be learning a new set of skills, always supposed to be self-improving. I mean, some of it, a lot of this, this stuff, um, comes out of um, the private sector. You know, it comes out of like corporate train, um, um, like executive success training programs. That ha- and those tools have gotten picked up by the psychotherapeutic industry, and and it's like now this kind of blend of personal growth, spiritual growth, financial success that gets wrapped in, you know, it's all into one big swirl (laughs) that, and then it gets marked, you know, pitched to people on social media. It's hard to escape it. And we know that it actually, um, rather than having what is perhaps, I hope, the intended effect of improving people's lives, it often actually raises people's stress levels because it's, sets up this system where you're never good enough. Right. Like that's the new form of like, not, you know, not being good enough where like for, you know, decades, you know, you had the, you know, you know, women look a certain way. You have all these beautiful women in these magazines and stuff where you're getting this new thing where you're getting all this information thrown about by you about like you're not good enough in your professional job like you should be you know start your own business 
uh, do it now, whatever. When there's people are, you know, we're like, yo, I'm, I, I'm just dealing with my mental stage now because, uh, mental things like mental health is finally being more out in the open. And there's all these things that are kind of blossoming now, but at the same time, you're getting these other things that are like putting pressure on people who are starting to blossom. Yeah, I mean, this is why one of the things that I love that's um, been happening in social justice spaces is just so much beautiful attention to healing justice or healing as an important part, a really critical part of social justice work that, you know, we um, have to make sure that our movements, you know, our, our our social justice movements are truly accessible for other people, but also for ourselves. Yeah. So we have to be able to take care of ourselves. We have to be able to assert what our needs are and have those needs respected. We can't be like, you know, with overwork. And so, you know, corporations are never going to care about us that way. You know, they have an investment in getting, everything uh, squeezing every last drop of your humanity out of you. <laughs> right. Um, and people who are trying to sell you things similarly, you know, they're not invested in your, in your well-being. But we know that, you know, in our communities and our families and our social justice spaces, there are a lot of people who are talking about this now, you know, who are really thinking about, like, how do we really take care of each other? How do we really especially at a time when we are looking at like a fascist takeover, a global pandemic an economic crash, it's too much for oh, everybody. Yeah. And so we really need to be good at taking care of each other. And see like uh, something like the, the me too movement in when it originally first launched, it had that, it had the ideas of, you know, we're going to, you know, we're here to heal. We're here to have a support. But when it got co-opted by, you know, larger names and everything, a lot of the people that would bring out their stories, they just got kind of thrown to the wolves out there. And they didn't really have the support system that they, you know, needed. So, you know, definitely, you know, I hope that like, as that goes on, we're going back to creating a, a support system for these people who need to heal, um, you know, for whatever reason, because sometimes when like certain things get co-opted and they become a really big deal, you are almost out there to tell your story, but out there alone. Yeah. And, you know, it's so important. We always, we have to always have an intersectional framework so that we can see everything that's happening. And, and with the Me Too movement, there was a kind of classic white co-optation by, I think, you know, white um, actors in the entertainment industry of a lot of work that had been done mostly by black feminist organizers yeah. like Tarana Burke, you know, who had first coined the term Me Too. And so, that's, you know, just points again to how important it is to, rec you know, to first recognize where these ideas come from and really lift up the voices of women of color um, and women of color organizers in particular. 
Um, and then not let corporations and media personalities and social influencers, you know, um, deal movement concepts. Because what happened with me too, just like you said, is that we, I mean, not only were people not really supported um, in a way that would, you know, that, that could make them safe and whole, we would, but um, the, you know, there started to be people selling Me Too t-shirts and Me Too products, and it <laughs> yeah. really became a kind of consumerism that was super creepy. One of the things that I noticed during my own journey to, you know, finding my identity is like when I was kind when I was looking at, you know, what was going on in, you know, the gay communities, the queer cultures, like I noticed at times there would be, you know, things that I just that seemed like they paralleled what was going on in like, you know, a heteronormative culture. Um, in regards there was, you know, there's time, you know, there's an amount of privilege maybe to like, you know, white gay men within that community. There's, there's certain things that I saw that were parallel. Do, do you, you know, do you see that, um, you know, being a queer woman that in these communities that there was things that paralleled in this, you know, this damaged heteronormative community that, you know, kind of found itself in the queer community also? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that lesbians don't have problems. We do. Yeah. Um, or that there, you know, aren't hierarchies within, um, within queer women's spaces. There are, but I think there's some really important differences between, how, you know, the, uh, between gay male subculture and then queer women's subculture that make gay men especially susceptible to um, some of that, like, assimilationism and hierarchy. And, you know, one of the differences is that many queer women um, understand their sexuality as having a political component that's not just about being gay, but it's also about being a feminist. And a lot yeah. of queer women come out sort of through feminist politics, maybe in college. Um, a lot of queer women um, are first introduced to queer ideas in political organizing work. A lot of queer women are um, are political radicals. So, you know, if you look at Black Lives Matter, for instance, it's a queer woman-led organization. Um, and, uh, you know, we see that at the national level, but here in L.A., you also see it at the local chapter that it's just like straight up queer. <laughs> right. So, um, and it's mostly... Um, women and non-binary people, um, not so much gay men. So I think um, we do need to look at, we need to interrogate, like, why gay male subculture is um, um, less politicized. And, you know, I, I could speculate about that, but I do think there's more that we need to know to, to understand that. There's a lot of 
toxic emphasis in gay male culture because, again, you know, it doesn't have a feminist um, check on it because most gay men, you know, aren't thinking, oh, well, if I'm gay, I have to be a feminist. Um, so some of that toxic stuff is about like there's, there's sort of a youth obsession, a beauty obsession, a money obsession mm-hmm. that runs through gay male culture that I think is really unfortunate. Sorry about that. But yeah, no, that's definitely, you know, something that I uh, see. And, you know, one thing, you know, another thing that I, you know, I I always caught myself doing, like, once I came out was that whenever I would talk about, about, like, my, my sexuality, I'd be like, yeah, I'm queer, but, you know, I still prefer women, mostly. And I don't know why I say that. I feel like I'm, like... like, like watering it down or anything, you know, like, I feel like I'm still putting it through like a, a like a bigoted lens, you know, is, is that something that a lot of people go through? Well, I think it's really great to examine that, you know, to reflect on what is going on and your reasons for saying that. But I also think that we want I mean, we want people to know who we're attracted to. There's nothing wrong with saying, like, if you're queer or you identify as pan or you identify as bi, saying, and, you know, let me also tell you the particular kind of people that I tend to be attracted to. I mean, for some people, their attraction, you know, is to, like, like I'm, I'm a dyke, but I almost exclusively in my dating history have been attracted to um, butches, genderqueer people. I've dated a couple of trans men. So I'm not one of those lesbians who is attracted to femininity. It's just not my thing. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like it's perfectly fine for me to just say that and that we should all be able to say, you know, what our desire is. But but maybe the question might be like, why are you saying I'm queer, but instead of I'm queer and I'm oh. queer and I'm mostly attracted to women. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. That's, uh, them, Cause I always felt weird about saying it. And, and I guess it's just like that one word, you know, kind of, you know, changes the, the, the whole feel of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause and that's what, you know, that, and that was like a, you know, a crazy thing that, you know, just going through all of this, that was actually really exciting is like you like finding all these different things that are on the spectrum of everything and how everything it's how everything's sort of like these waves and they go up and down and there's all it's, it's, it's all a very exciting thing. And then when you like, you know, you know, after the whole, you know, gender identity thing, the thing that I, I really got excited for in learning was what is gender expression? How are you going to express it? You know, right. and I feel like that's a very exciting thing that I don't, I think in a, in a heteronormative culture, people don't understand enough, you know, like I was, um, I was at my friend's uh, shop. He's uh, he has his own uh, clothing line. Uh, he's been around for 21 years here in Detroit. Uh, it's you know streetwear in the, in Detroit. Um, you know mostly black community. 
um, is his, uh, his clientele or whatever. And he, you know, we were talking back and forth about like about fashion and everything. And he was talking, he was talking about like how some people will come in and be like, yo, and they would like something, but they'd be apprehensive about buying it because their friends were like, you know, wearing a certain brand or label, whatever. And he was just like, you know, that, that doesn't really matter. You know, just check it out. Like my, my right. stuff is, uh, you know, quality, just feel it. It's quality. And he was telling me how, like, I just want people to, you know, be able to express themselves through fashion, whether it's my clothes or not. And I felt like that was a thing that like, I really got recently. And I even got that before I came out where I was just like, okay, your expression of yourself is a very powerful thing and it's very artistic, very spiritual. And do you think that's something that like in the heteronormative community that they just don't understand properly? Well, I, I mean, I think it is really scripted. So it's not, you know, obviously straight people play with fashion, you know, but the thing is that there are, really rigid rules about what fashion means for women and what fashion means for men. And there are really rigid rules about what, or like a very narrow set of possibilities for what straight men apparently are going to think is attractive um, on a woman's body or even about a woman's body itself. And so, um, I mean, I loved how often you said the word Exciting, and that really comes out in the book that there's a whole chapter of the book um, in which I asked queer people to talk about what do they think of straight culture? Like what have been their um, experiences of straight culture? And one of the most common things that people said as they were like trying to describe what straight culture is or what it feels like to them as a queer person is that it is so boring. Many people just said, like, when I think about straight people, I just think about how bored they make me. And I think, you know, that's because there is so much more creativity and freedom when you're not worried about like, oh, you know, if I if I do this, if I say this, if I walk this way, if I talk this way, if I wear this clothing, is somebody going to think I'm a fag? Is somebody not going to find me attractive? You know, just right. it's just it's it's just so um, restrictive. Oh, definitely, definitely, and that was, you know that's something that I felt more free about once I came out was that oh I can like. I don't have like, I don't have those insecurities anymore. And if they, uh, and if someone says anything, I'm like, you didn't hear I'm queer, man. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm non-binary. Right. Man. I'm Whatever you're thinking, it's true. It's, it's true. It's true. It's, all right. So, so what, <laughs> you know, as, as we uh, wind down things here, um, you know, what, do, you know, you got this new book out, you know, with, uh, you know, tragedy of heterosexuality, you know, what's next with you? You know, what are you working on these days? You know, what's, what's the future we hold for you? Mm, Thank you for asking that. Um, Well, you know, it's an interesting time to be a researcher because we're all supposed to be quarantined, right? But before 
before COVID, um, I had started a research project that was about um, Hollywood sex scenes and how the Me Too movement is really changing the way that those are choreographed and filmed and negotiated in actors' contracts. And so I was really excited to be working on that project. I was, um, you know, talking to a lot of people who um, are on set, trying to make sure that actors are safe and comfortable out there, you know, filming a sex scene. Um, And one of the things that I was finding in that project is that, you know, the television that we watch, I mean, not like, you know, on just like regular network television, but on cable now with like HBO and all that, where there's just so many shows with like hardcore sex scenes or explicit sex scenes. We, we often don't think about what is the experience like for those actors, especially those women to do this scene. And, um, and we and we definitely don't think of it as sex work, right? Because we think, you know, this is TV. Yeah. But what I found is that a lot of these women, um, including like some pretty well-known actors, had been sexually harassed, sexually assaulted on set, um, given no advanced information about how the scene was going to go. You know, hmm. that it, it was really... Um, so unregulated that it was a really um, like scary experience for many, many women actors Mm. to film a sex scene because there were so many abuses happening as they were being filmed. So hopefully I'm going to get to get back to that project um, so that I can get that out there in the world. No, and a lot of what you just said is some, you know, Another part of my journey really was, you know, learning about sex work and the porn industry. And a lot of that actually helped me out with, you know, finding my identity. And even a podcast that I was, you know, listening to to today, um, it's called um, Two Girls, One Mike. It's a porn cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. And they had Sarah J on there. And... The funny thing is, she said many things that you just said, how, like, there was just so many things that were unregulated to where, you know, down to the, you know, what the videos are being tagged, the CEO of, of stuff online, um, girls, you know, uh, showing up to shoots and not knowing what, what was about to go on, going on, you know, what they were supposed to do, um, all that sort of stuff that, you know, in her company, like she definitely, you know, has, you know, reinvented for herself just to make sure that, you know, every, you know, women have more power to, to know what's going on, how they're going to be represented in the, you know, the films and everything like that. So, you know, it's definitely, you know, that, you know, it's definitely not surprising that, you know, all that stuff is, is going on that, you know, that, you know, there is that, you know, the, the harassment and just like a lot of the unknown going on with the, with those, uh, the women in, in, in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of, was one of the major takeaways for me is that whenever you have a situation in which 
there is not a negotiation in advance about what's going to happen. It's sort of just like left like, well, let's just like get into character and see how it flows or, you know, we'll just like play around with it or whatever. That is just a bad, bad deal for women because it's in it's in that kind of setup where women end up getting assaulted or and harassed. Yeah crazy and just kind of you know you know close things out you know with you know with all your books especially with the the new book you know what do you hope that your your the readers get out of your research um that's such a good question i mean i guess overall my hope would be that readers really get it that being queer is such a beautiful and liberating experience. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, one of the things that's come out of the whole born this way, you know, approach to thinking about sexuality is that people have taken from that, like, well, you know, gay people are gay because they were born that way. They can't help it. If they could help it, maybe they would have just been straight, you know. Um, and many people seem to think that being straight um, like I said, is, is makes for an easier life. But I actually think I would be so sad if I had to be straight. <laughs> so, I'm so happy being queer. I love it so much. It's such, it brings so much joy to my life. And yeah. so I, I would just love for, for people, especially young people, to see that. Right. I wish I could have, you know, come to this conclusion a long time ago. You know, but like for what I f was experiencing, what I was feeling, like that information, those discussions just weren't out there. So yeah, it was just like know. an unknown thing, you know. But now that like I understand myself more, like it felt like a, you know, it felt like a superpower now that I can like, right. and I can tap into all these different things in my being. I can tap into like my masculine side, but then I can tap into my feminine side. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean, I mean, I want to be really clear, like, it doesn't mean that homophobia, transphobia, that those things don't exist, that violence against queer people doesn't exist. It does, and it's horrific. Yeah. Um, but the point is that it, it, that's about straight people. It's about the violence of straight people. It's not about the queerness. The queer, you know, being queer, the queerness brings joy to people's life that's yeah. that's the good part and so you know one of the things i think we see that i that was is kind of a take-home message of the book is that like straight people make queer people miserable and they also make themselves miserable <laughs> so we really need to help them out right and like that whole sort of you know they're just born that way automatically you know puts queer people like as a victim Right, exactly. And it's not true. <laughs> so it's been a, right. it's been good talking with you. You know, you know, love the research that you've been doing. Where can people go online to get more information about you and about the new book and your previous books? So you can find me at janewardphd.com. And the book is available, it's of course on Amazon, but it's at your local bookstore or you could get it from NYU Press. Thank you for listening to the Fresh of the Word podcast. 
Hosted and produced by myself, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. Empowered by Anchor at anchor.fm slash fresh of the word. Fresh of the word theme music provided by Steve O. You can find more of his productions at imsteveo.bandcamp.com and that's E-Y-E-A-M-S-T-E-V-E-O.bandcamp.com. Fresh of the Word is available on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you want to support Fresh of the Word, please consider pledging via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh of the word. Follow Fresh of the Word on social media on Twitter at Fresh of the Pod, on Instagram at Fresh of the Word Podcast, and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Fresh the Word. For more information about Fresh of the Word and our other podcasts, Breaking Records and Renaissance Soul, and a collection of pop culture articles and reviews, please visit freshofthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and your support. Goodbye and good night. Fresh is the word.